Hello everyone, here's a conversation with Warren Powell. Professor Powell, let me call him this way, is now the Chief Analytics Officer of Optimal Dynamics, but is Professor Emeritus uh, of Princeton University, where he worked for 40 years at the Department of Operation Research and Financial Engineering. Uh, you will see this episode is half presentation, half uh, conversation, interview, questions, let's say, uh, revolving around his latest book, which I couldn't resist getting, Reinforcement Learning and Stochastic Optimization, a Unified Framework for Sequential Decisions. Um, it's a unifying attempt, uh, it's a big book, and uh, it's a really good book in order to get a generalist view of sequential decisions, um, bridging from, uh, let's say, deterministic optimal control and uh, uh, yeah, discussing uh, what the optimal control community has been focused on in terms of uh, what's called the Hamilton-Jacobi equation. We, we discuss even the, the details of the technicalities, but uh, yeah, putting this together with uh, the, the, the surge of uh, machine learning and sequential decisions, reinforcement learning, deep Q learning, uh, what are the different uh, assumptions in, this, in these frameworks and how they can be unified. And uh, I think uh, he talks about the jungle of sequential decision methods. Um, even in terms of language, uh, you, you see during the conversation, uh, uh, he's really careful about language. And I think this is really important in order to push forward this unifying attempt uh, in, uh, in, uh, in translating what's learned already from one community, may it be reinforcement learning, optimal control, um, characterized by, for example, uh, explicit knowledge of a, of a model, pretty accurate, often deterministic model, uh, compared to somewhere in which you need the heavy data-driven techniques. Uh, and by the way, this book treats machine learning as a, as a tool to be used inside a more general framework. Uh, so it's really, I think it's a really good way of thinking about the problems at hand that, uh, as he says, uh, for him are mainly about logistics and, uh, but you know, logistics is one example of high dimensional stochastic decision making, sequential decision making. And so this can be applied to finance, can be applied to uh, autonomous driving, even though uh, I don't think we mentioned it explicitly that logistics and autonomous driving go together, but of course they do. Um, um, also in terms of inventory optimization and uh, uh, shipping scheduling. So uh, but from a portfolio management perspective, it's really helpful, let's say, interesting perspective to take. Um, so I hope you enjoy it, uh, not only for the value this conversation can have in uh, quantitative finance, but more in general. Great, yes, thank you very much for joining and uh, the floor is all yours. Okay, thanks, Matteo. So I'm going to give a very short introduction to this field that I'm calling sequential decision analytics. So here's a slide of problems that I have personally worked on in my lab, and they started off in freight transportation because in the beginning of my career, uh, trucking was all regulated, and they needed optimization models to help run efficient companies. But that evolved in the rail and air cargo. Uh, lower left-hand corner is a robotic scientist for machine learning, worked on many health problems. Uh, energy problems, e-commerce, pretty much anything that involves humans making decisions. And these were all making decisions over time. And as we make decisions, new information comes in, which means the decision I, I'm making has to be made under the presence of the uncertainty of the information that hasn't arrived yet. So I like to talk about five layers of intelligence. 
I'm going to go quickly through the first three layers because this is basic information acquisition, which remains a very, very big topic. Whether it's knowing what disease you have or the state of climate or maybe where is my package coming from from China. Then there's communication and storage. And when we get to transactions and execution, well, often this involves a bunch of people in a room sitting at computers making decisions. So the decision making itself at this stage is still very manual. Uh, this is this was very high tech, by the way, in the 1990s, and it still happens today. So let me touch briefly on learning. So this is the fourth layer, and this is what everybody thinks of as AI today. Um, there's I like to describe four types of learning, like pattern matching, is this a flower, classification, should I offer this customer on the internet a pair of sunglasses to buy, inference, how will the market respond to price, for example, because it's uncertain, and good old-fashioned prediction, which is I can use history to try to predict the future. Now, whenever you're using the computer to uh, do any sort of estimation or prediction, and this is what everybody refers to by machine learning, and increasingly, uh, this is what everybody means when they call AI, you have a mathematical function, and these functions fall into three overlapping categories. Lookup tables, uh, uh, parametric models, uh, non-parametric models. Now, fitting these models, and, and, and of course, there's a neural network, so neural networks is tucked in here. Anytime you talk about machine learning, you're in one of these three circles. Now, machine learning is an optimization problem. Now, let's imagine I'm trying to come up with a function. Let's say I want to predict demand as a function of price. And one expert, as, as happened to me, came in and says, oh, let's, let's just do a line. And I'll say, okay, let's use the data to fit the best line. Somebody else could come in and go, no, 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 it's not a line. It's got to be some sort of a curve. And I'll like, okay, let's use the data to fit the best curve. Today, a lot of people want to say, oh, but let's use a neural network. My one word of caution is neural networks have a lot of parameters, so you can fit almost anything. But no matter what you end up doing, you're choosing from one of the families of functions in these three circles. And you have to find what's the best function. Often that's a human making that choice. And then you use a computer to, to tune the algorithm using a training data set. Okay? Now, let's get to my favorite topic, which is decisions. So here's all these people making decisions. And uh, when this first started becoming popular with these rooms full of computers, this was very high tech. Today, uh, it sort of looks like a Model T assembly line because in the early 1900s, this was high tech. This was a great breakthrough and it dramatically dropped the cost of uh, making cars just the way computers dramatically dropped the cost of managing information inside a company. Today, what we would like to do is to build the information equivalent of a robotic uh, assembly line, where instead of having humans make all those decisions, we want computers to make decisions. So we have to think about how do we get computers to make decisions. Let's take all of my applications that I've worked on. Behind every one of these applications are decisions. Every one of these boxes has a question that implies a choice, and there's different answers you could make, and you want to make the best answer. So these are all decisions. And decisions can be collecting information, or decision could be dispatching a truck, or ordering inventory, or, uh, uh, or prescribing a particular medication. Now, after you make a decision, information comes in. Now, this is information I didn't know when I made the decision, which means all those decisions had to be made under the uncertainty of the information that has not yet arrived. So all of these are what I call sequential decision problems. Decision, information, decision, information. 
and the information that arrives after a decision is made is not known when we made the decision. So inventory problems, you place an order for inventory, it could arrive from the Amazon warehouse right away or it could arrive from China seven weeks from now. Then you observe the demands, then you make more inventory ordering decisions, you get more demands, decisions, information, decisions, information. Uh, the company I work with now, Optimal Dynamics, uh, works with automated software for dispatching trucks and you have the steady flow of loads being called in from the marketplace. We might be doing something with testing vaccines and we have to make a decision about what vaccine, what dosage, which people, and then observe how people respond to it. Finance, you have all the trading of stocks and I have decisions of what to buy, sell and hold while the information on changing prices comes in. And maybe you're a company that has to decide how to price uh, its various products. So your decision is a pricing decision and the information comes in of how many you're selling. Now, let me take a really tiny problem. I'm going to start with an initial decision of holding an asset and I can buy, sell or, or uh, hold the asset, after which the price goes up, down or stays the same. And as you walk this into time, the problem explodes. And this is a toy problem. This is utterly a tiny problem, whereas we can be managing big supply chains or, or dispatching fleets of trucks. Now, anytime you want to translate a real-world problem into computer software, you have to go through the process of a mathematical model. There's fields like deterministic optimization. Everybody around the world knows how to model deterministic optimization. It takes training. Same thing with machine learning. Thousands and thousands of people are graduating every year with skills in machine learning. They all know how to write down a machine learning problem on the computer. But when you get to sequential decision problems, you get into what I like to call the jungle of stochastic optimization. Every one of these terms is an entirely different field, supported by at least one book, sometimes several books. You can get a PhD in most of these books, spend years of your life. Some people spend entire careers. You'll see one of these 15 books is called Reinforcement Learning, another Optimal Control, and there's a book on stochastic control. My book in the upper right-hand corner is on approximate dynamic programming. There's eight different notational systems, different tools, different applications. This is not a coherent field. Mm -hmm. Now, very briefly, I can show you how to model a sequential decision problem. You take what we call a state variable, but literally it's what you know or believe. Okay, It's the information that captures everything you know about a problem. So you then make a decision using the information from the state variable, and then new information arrives. And I illustrated these earlier. Each time you make a decision, you incur some sort of a cost or contribution or performance metric. Decisions are made with a method that we call a policy. I have a, I've compiled a list of 48 words in the English language that all roughly mean the word policy. But every time I use the word policy, just think method for making a decision. We have something called a transition function that tells me how the state variables evolve. And finally, we have an objective where we want to find the best function, the best policy for making decisions. And the Greek letter pi is sort of the standard notation, like pi for policy. Now, I'm not going to go through this notation other than to point out there's five different elements to any sequential decision problem. These five elements can be used to model every single book on the right-hand side and it can be used to model every single problem that I've ever encountered, any sequential decision problem. So I call this the universal framework, and I don't wanna walk through this, 
but there is a process and I have a six step process, but the one that I want to draw attention to is the very first one, step one, where you have to answer three questions in English. What are your performance metrics? What are the types of decisions? What are the sources of uncertainty? And then you go through this whole modeling process and I have two books and web pages and videos and whatnot that I will, will point people to, but that all starts with these three questions that I think, even if you're never gonna do math or computers, that if you would just pose those three questions would often clarify a lot of complex problems. Now, you hear a lot about machine learning, a lot of people call that AI, and I'm sitting here talking about sequential decisions. I wanna build a bridge between the two. In machine learning, you're looking for the best function, a statistical model that matches the data. When you're doing sequential decisions, you're looking for the best function, but we call it a policy or a method for making decisions. In machine learning, you have to have a big training data set. In sequential decisions, you do not have to have a training data set. You have to have a model of the physical problem. So that then leads you to how do you search over policies? And in just one slide, I'm just gonna give you the big picture. There are four fundamental classes of policies. Uh, policy function approximations are simple rules and methods, order up to, buy low, sell high. Um, there's something called a cost function approximation, and these are simple optimization problems, usually deterministic, uh, driving from uh, one city to the next using Google Maps. And you say, okay, it used a point estimate of the travel times, it gave you a path, it also gave you an estimate of how long it would take, and it says 40 minutes, you may say, oh, wow, I don't know about that 40 minutes, I'm gonna add 15 just to be safe. And that's a tunable parameter. Value function approximations, huge level of attention from the academic community, not, not so widely used in real world, but let's say I have a truck driver and I have to decide, do I set, put him on a load that takes him to Michigan or do I put him on a load that takes him to Texas? And I don't know what's gonna happen in the future, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna estimate the value of the truck in the future uh, in Michigan or Texas. And that's what we call a value function approximation. So anytime you make a decision where you incur a cost or contribution, then it takes you to a new state. If I can estimate the value of being in that state, that's a very useful tool. And then finally, we have the direct look aheads. Google Maps is my best example, but there's many variations where you plan into the future to make a decision now. Now here's my big claim. These four classes of policies are universal. They cover every method for making decisions used in the research literature or used in practice, including methods that haven't been invented yet. They're meta classes. Now, what happens is if you go back to that uh, slide with the 15 different books, each one of those books has its own pet method, sometimes two methods. Think of these as a hammer looking for a nail. By the way, I wrote one of the books. So there I am with my hammer thinking, wow, this is great. It turned out that the whole world looked like nails to me about 15 or 20 years ago. In the real world, sequential decisions arise in many flavors. There's many different uh, uh, ways that they come up and you're just not gonna be able to solve them all with one method. Now, let me finish my bridge with machine learning. So we've learned that one of the four classes is called policy function approximations. It turns out policy function approximations includes every method that you might use in machine learning. Then we have three more classes, the cost function approximations, value function approximations, and direct look ahead models. 
each of these three classes of policies have inside the policy, inside the method, their own optimization problem, like Google Maps solving the uh, uh, the best path, or me deciding where should I buy my electronic component, oh, maybe I'll go to Best Buy because, oh, they've got the geek squad, and if anything goes wrong, I can go there to get it fixed. So sequential decisions in machine learning are very similar, just sequential decisions are much richer, okay? With machine learning, you just need a data set. Well, there's a lot of information in that data set, but if you're gonna use something like neural networks, you better have a big data set. With sequential decisions, I'm gonna use a model. And by the way, with machine learning, you're never gonna outperform what people can do. But with sequential decisions, you can. And sequential decisions is where fields like reinforcement learning fall, where they got it to uh, play chess and computer go and outperform the best metrics. Uh, in, in optimal dynamics, we use sequential decisions to dispatch trucks better than a company can. So we use, here's a little document, uh, summarizes the methods at Optimal Dynamics. You can download an OD white paper. It has a little bit of math. Even if you don't read the whole thing, it's just 13 pages. If you just skim the, the section headings, you'll see me mentioning all four classes of policies. So let me close by saying there's three core fields of analytics well-established, taught uh, the world over, one is called optimization, or really deterministic optimization, linear and nonlinear and integer programming. There's machine learning. Thousands of, I don't know, there must be many hundreds of programs teaching many thousands of students every year. And they're all using any one of a number of books. It really doesn't matter what book you use. You're gonna come out knowing the same material. And another uh, quite old field called simulation, still extremely powerful, uh, once again, many books in the same field. But when you go to the world of sequential decisions, which is utterly universal, you've got this jungle of books, which is a complete mess. They're, mathematically, they tend to be fairly advanced uh, and, and they don't really teach you with the broad toolbox. So last year I came out with my new book, Reinforcement Learning and Stochastic Optimization. This is a book for graduate students, the technically inclined. It has enough math that you need if you are gonna write code. All right, so it's not a theoretician's book, but it's not a broad audience book. It's the kind of book that when you wanna write code. But I have a second book, uh, Sequential Decision Analytics and Modeling that I wrote for an undergraduate course. It uses a teach by example style. It has analytics, but very light analytics. And by the way, you can download this one for free if you take a peek at the URL at the very bottom, tinyurl.com, pal S-D-A-M book and you can just get the whole book for free. Um, this book will, is a companion to the other book. It does not need the other book. It's a great place to start. All but everything, every chapter other than chapters one and seven are different examples. It also makes it very easy to skim. So I'm gonna, I'm trying to get uh, uh, schools to introduce courses. I've got about uh, 20 uh, academic programs all starting teaching this material in some way. And I'm really encouraging. And by the way, uh, uh, I have uh, places where even companies can go and download a lot of material. Uh, these are some additional references. If you make a note of the very last link, tinyurl.com SDA links, that's a web page of links. 
and it has all the other links there and it has links to books and videos and web pages with additional information and it even has right at the very top a section on all different ways to uh, teach this material so Great. that's my part <laughs> Great. Thank you very much. Uh, really interesting, really refreshing. And uh, I'll try to, to, how do you say, make justice to the listeners hoping to come up with the same questions they may have listening to this. But uh, uh, for sure, it's really refreshing um, to see the understanding of machine learning as a, as a, as a, as a tool inside a more a broader framework. Um, so maybe the first question is, uh, uh, what is... Uh, um, Maybe also a comment, which is, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen as a joke, uh, ChatGPT play chess. Now you mentioned the uh, reinforcement learning play chess. There is a, mm -hmm. a meme of reinforcement uh, of ChatGPT playing and breaking the rules, basically, because it's not built for that. And uh, so the, uh, I think there is a big confusion. And uh, the first question is, according to you, why has this happened? Why there are there's such a big flow of people doing data science now? without thinking about this uh, this bigger picture. Well, so when you use the phrase data science, we also have to talk about what do we mean by that? Because uh, it's a bit of an, an umbrella term. I mean, strictly speaking, it's the science of data and then building statistical models and that sort of thing. Uh, now, people are increasingly using it to mean anything analytical, mm -hmm. which means optimization and math programming and sequential decision analytics, although they might right. call it reinforcement learning. So. Uh, so the problem is already in, in language, let's say, in the choice of language. Yeah, like for example, artificial intelligence is one of these terms that you see it everywhere, mm -hmm. and yet it's amazing, it, it's clear. Uh, people will talk about the AI, like it's the car, and what mm -hmm. they mean there is it's a machine learning model, and specifically it means a neural network. Mm -hmm. These are not sequential decision problems. This is the machine learning side. That's why I've made such a big deal in my talk of building a bridge between machine learning, which is fitting a mathematical function to data, that's supervised learning, versus sequential decisions where we're not fitting to data. We, we don't even have any input data. Now, sequential decisions uses uh, machine learning. Chapter three of my book is an 80-page chapter on machine learning because within the algorithms, we still have to do machine learning. But you don't have to come to it with a big data set to train anything. Mm -hmm. You now. Computer Go is very attractive because it's simple. We all understand it. It's very simple to describe and understand. Uh, and by the way, there's really good Go players out there. So when a, when a computer outperforms the top humans, it's like, well, that's pretty impressive. Now let's contrast Computer Go to, I don't know, say optimizing a trucking company. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and if you, what if I can do this? Uh, I think I've got this down here somewhere. I may. Here we go. If it's okay, I'd like to share my yeah. screen again. Sure. So, when you, when you think of Computer Go, um, you know, people say, oh, it's a really hard problem. It's got this big state space and things like this. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's a really easy problem to describe. It's easy to model. Uh, here's a trucking company, a couple thousand trucks. Uh, every one of these little circles is a truck driver moving. Truck drivers have a lot of complicated attributes like where their home is and how many hours they've been driving and what type of equipment they're moving. 
uh, not only do I have to take each driver and say what load should he move. So think of this as Uber, but on a national scale. Mm -hmm. uh, these drivers have to move empty to a load just the way Uber does. Then they have to move a load. But these drivers, some of the drivers want to get home every first or second night. Sometimes they want to get home on weekends. And sometimes they want to drive for weeks and weeks just so they make a lot of money. The loads being called in, just like Uber, they're being called in randomly over time. Often they're being called in several days in advance. And when I assign a driver to a load that goes to Michigan, I have to think about, oh, once I get this driver in Michigan, can I get him home on time? Mm -hmm. So this is what we're trying to solve. Now, this is what Optimal Dynamics does. And to contrast this with Computer Go, uh, this is a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, it's highly stochastic. Computer Go is not truly stochastic. Mm -hmm. You may have some noise in your opponent, but mm -hmm. what they do with Computer Go is they often have uh, two agents playing against each other. And the more they play, the more predictable they become. So Computer Go becomes what we call a deterministic system. Mm -hmm. Whereas in our trucking problem, the shippers are calling in randomly. It's very, very noisy. And so you're truly having to deal with uncertainty. Now, behind the scenes, we're doing some data analytics. We're doing machine learning. We're estimating the value of a truck. We're trying to predict whether or not the customer will call and load, which we cannot do perfectly. Uh, we, we cannot even do very well. So uh, th there's, I, I know it's fun to talk about games like, uh, uh, like Computer Go, but these are toys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, sequential decision analytics, you can go from a trucking company or supply chain to managing COVID vaccines, uh, managing energy, health. You can do things in the lab, sequential design of experiments. I spent years working with material scientists, and the sequential decision is what experiment to run next, what catalyst, what density, what diameter, what temperature. And then the randomness is what's the outcome of the experiment. I loved to ask the, ex the scientists, I'd say, did anybody ever run an experiment that didn't work? <laughs> and those are all sequential decision problems. Now, I would love to say, what's the decision? Now, this is something interesting, because Computer Go, you always know what the decisions are, what, what, what place to play, or what move to make with, with chess. Mm -hmm. uh, in more complex problems like climate change, and energy, and health, and supply chains, it's not that easy to sit down and list all the decisions. And so, that slide where I said, give me the answers to three questions. Mm -hmm. What are your metrics? What types of decisions you're making? What are your uncertainties? Is a great exercise. Mm -hmm. I also love to ask the questions. It's a rhetorical question. It says, if you want to perform better, you have to make better decisions. What are the decisions? Business executives love that because I ask them that and they just stare at me with blank stares. I'm like, look, if you want to make more money, how do you make more money? Have to make better decisions. Give me your little red book with all the decisions. And they're mm -hmm. like, they're all implicit, not not spelled out, and maybe th that's why the connection with language. I have to tell you, in prepare in reading your books and preparing this uh, this set of questions, I ended up studying logic books and uh, philosophy almost in the sense that, you know, we're talking about qu quantitative things, but I'm not even sure. Maybe there is value in your way of framing things that don't even require a, a purely quantitative approach. I don't know. Well, so remember, like that six-step process was which is all quantitative except for the first square, mm -hmm. 
I need those answers to the three questions. Nothing quantitative here, nothing analytical here. And it's amazing. If you go to somebody with a big complex problem like the COVID crisis or energy problems, whatnot, mm -hmm. and say, what are your decisions? You're going to get blank stares. Mm -hmm. There's not one metric. There's going to be a whole family of metrics. And the uncertainties. I had one company, chemicals company, that says, Warren, mm -hmm. how do we identify the sources of uncertainty? And my response was, get yourself a whiteboard and a few six packs of beer, and you just brainstorm. By the way, the same answer goes with decisions. The metrics people tend to be good at, you know, they're like, oh, I, I know what I want to accomplish, but there's this word in English, it's idea. Not always, but most of the time, the word idea refers to a decision. You know, what's an idea? What, what they mean is something I can do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a decision. So knowing the decisions is something where one of the English terms we use is idea, which means we have to sit and think about it. Now, you never ran into that with Computer Go. All the possible decisions is set in advance. It's really clear. The issues of these complex problem formulations don't arise with Computer Go, mm -hmm. but it absolutely rises in real-world human processes. Now, that slide that I had where I said, if you buy, sell, or hold an asset, and then the mm -hmm. price goes up and down, and I showed how it ex exploded, so think of Google Maps. Now, there's many paths through a network, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, I pick one path and I have great algorithms behind the scenes who can find that one path for me. So when you introduce uncertainty, there isn't one path mm -hmm. because every time you make a choice, some exogenous source comes in with information that I have no control of, and that immediately explodes the problem. So in the 1950s, this is when uh, Bellman invented dynamic programming, which was considered a breakthrough. I mean, you can actually solve toy problems, but toy problems become hard when there's stochastics. Mm -hmm. Now, there's another field called optimal control, and they have something called Hamilton-Jacobi equations. Hamilton-Jacobi equations and Bellman equations are the same thing, okay? They're just different names. Some people call them HJB equations. Mm -hmm. They're just the same thing. You're in some state. You take an action that takes you to a downstream state. If you can have the value of that downstream state, I can tell you the best action. So here's the catch. I can't figure out the value of the downstream state except for a small number of toy problems. So if you go to chapter 14 in my big book, it's mm -hmm. called Exact Dynamic Programming. Mm -hmm. And it's all the problems we can solve exactly right. in one chapter, in one chapter. And then I have four more chapters on what do we do when we can't find the value and we have to approximate. But let me tell you, of the four classes of policies, one of them depends on the Bellman equation or the Hamilton-Jacobi equations. It's the one that's used the least in practice. In everyday life, we humans all make decisions. How many people out there are using Bellman's equation? So I take the four classes of policies. The last class is direct look ahead. I like to split into two. Deterministic look ahead, which is mm -hmm. Google Maps. Mm -hmm. I use point estimates of the travel times. But then as the travel, as the estimates of the times change on the network, Google Maps recomputes. So it adapts. It does a point estimate and recomputes. Sometimes you do need to look forward, explicitly handling the uncertainties of what might, what might happen in the future. So let's divide that into two groups. So now I have five, roughly five classes of policy. The first class consists of the PFAs, the simple rules, the CFAs, which are simple optimization models, and the deterministic locus. Those are the big three. 
because I claim every time anybody makes a decision anywhere, they are using one of these classes of policies. That first category, that's what everybody uses. Now, which of those three tends to be highly problem dependent? And it tends to be obvious. We just naturally do things, okay? Then I have a second category, which I call the stochastic look ahead, because you know what? Sometimes I have to anticipate that different things might happen in the future. Mm -hmm. The last class that I claim is least used in practice is the one based on Bellman's equation. Okay. And yet of the 15 books, 10 of those books are either exclusively dedicated to Bellman or at least represented in a significant way, including my book. Mm -hmm. right. Love Bellman. It's almost a waste of time to teach it. You really need to be teaching those first three categories all of which have tunable parameters, or at least should have tunable parameters. Here's a, here's a way of using a tunable parameter that, that Google could be doing uh, with Google Maps. What they'll do is they, they get a lot of data on how long it takes to traverse a segment of the network, and they average it and they take the mean. Mm -hmm. And then they use those point estimates to compute a travel time. What if, instead of using the mean, they used, I don't know, the 80th percentile? You know, they sort of said, well, how bad could it be? Now, there's actually a fancy name for that. It's called robust optimization. It's still a deterministic problem. Now, should I use the 80th percentile? Should I use the 90th? Should I use the 70th? That's a tunable parameter. Mm -hmm. Those tunable parameters have an exact analogy over here in machine learning, where I'm tuning parameters to fit a model to data. So machine learning and sequential decisions in what I call the big three classes of policies in category one are very similar. It's just that one needs a, a training data set and the other needs a model of the physical problem. Then you get to the fancy stuff and you open up books and the we academics love the fancy stuff. Oh, do we love the fancy stuff. But the problem is it's not that useful in everyday life. And the big three have issues. Tuning those parameters is actually hard. How do you tune parameters? So uh, one way is to build a simulator, and, and that's what we do at Optimal Dynamics. We build a big simulator of a trucking fleet, and it's hugely powerful. It took me, I don't know, about a decade to build that simulator. So in everyday life, guess what? We don't have simulators. We do have the real world. So a lot of our tuning so here's an uh, instance, very real world in energy. Uh, uh, here in the mid-Atlantic states of the United States, uh, there's a grid operator called PJM. Uh, they serve about 60 million people, and they have to plan today how, what generators are running tomorrow. And they have to put in a buffer. They're literally required by law to make sure the system will run if the single biggest energy plant, usually a, a nuclear network, fails. Right. Now, they have all these reserves, but they don't have a simulator. What they do is they sit on money Monday and plan for Tuesday. When they get to Tuesday and they see what actually happened, they put that data back in the Monday model. And then they see, they look at their, their buffers and they say, okay, you know, it's not that they never run out, but they want to make sure they didn't get close. So they're using tuning in the field. Every time you use Google Maps and it says it'll take 40 minutes and you add in 15, well, maybe that 15 meant that you arrived 10 minutes too early, or maybe you arrived late. So you're tuning that on a day-to-day -day basis. So we do a lot of this tuning in the real world. 
Now, you don't see people, academics, studying this. We need to. Chapter seven of my book is dedicated to uh, using all four classes of policies because this tuning is itself a sequential decision problem. Right. And so I do that tuning in chapter seven and I cover all four classes of policies, two of which are quite useful. Right, yeah, great. Uh, this is uh, definitely valuable for me. Uh, at least in, uh, let me say out loud that uh, I never thought of sequential decision making. Let's say I never thought about the value of uh, reinforcement learning as I saw it in uh, financial, in data, in financial studies, let's say. But if you think, because I never thought about the fact that, okay, one can approximate that the action of the agent doesn't influence the environment because it's so small, let's say. So one can do this assumption. But still... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I, I saw that. Let me, let me, uh, hold on. Okay. In finance, the action of the agent, when you say the environment, I think you're thinking of the market. Yeah. What the reinforcement learning people do is when you buy or sell a stock, that's changing the environment. Yeah. But so you are changing say the environment. In, uh, but the word in, environment is not a good word. Okay. No, I, I, meant, I meant the market. The, the system, yeah. you cannot in control finance, that you're interacting with. Uh, yeah, that's a language problem with finance because in finance, you say the word environment, you think the market. But if it's computer Go, the environment is the game of Go. So in finance, the environment includes how much of each stock that you own. So you are acting on the environment in the sense that you're buying and selling stocks. That they use that word environment in that in that more general way. So whether or not you're you're impacting prices, you know, it's like, you know, I can turn on my air conditioner, but it doesn't change the temperature outside. But it does change the my environment because I turned on the air conditioner. Okay, right. If okay. And, and by the way, so Google uh, reinforcement learning. Every reinforcement learning problem is a sequential decision problem. You open up any RL right. book and they'll say, "Oh, it's a Markov decision process." Mm -hmm. Markov decision process is just another word for sequential decision problem. Here's another thing: every RL algorithm is a sequential decision problem. Right. Okay. Anytime you have anything sequentially where you're making a choice, you have a sequential decision problem. So this is universal. I ha On LinkedIn today, this morning, I had somebody say, well, this doesn't seem to apply to industry. And I'm pulling my hair out and going, you've got to be crazy. It applies to everything in industry. Right. Uh, let me clarify what I wanted to say before about markets. So let's say one, let's say one is small enough that can neglect the fact that uh, in studying what would have happened in the past, uh, can neglect uh, the influence of his actions on the outer environment, on the price of an asset. On the market. On the market. Yeah, on the market. On the market. Um, it does impact it, it, how, many, how much it, of each stock you yeah, own. Yes. We, yeah. Which is the state of the system, which is... Um, so let's say one can only use the past to find an optimal policy. With the assumption I just said, um, uh, only the fact of no stationarity uh, makes uh, sequential decision making valuable. In other words, I started appreciating the fact that uh, in uh, non stationary environments, systems, uh, online training is valuable. Well, okay, let's be careful. Uh, all problems, all problems that involve a decision or sequential decision problems, whether they're stationary or not. Okay. Now, 
whether you're stationary or non-stationary will change what class of policy works best. So if you have a steady state policy, let's take an inventory problem. And I have you know, a nice stationary problem of selling my bars of, of toothpaste. A simple order up to when the inventory goes right. below some number okay. order up to, that can work great. And I can tune those order up to's on past historical data. So now let's say, okay, it's not toothpaste. Uh, it's uh, sugar cookies for Christmas. It's highly, highly non-stationary. And you have a rolling forecast. It's still a sequential decision problem. But you're not going to be able to do that kind of training, as you pointed out. I'm going to need a look-ahead policy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to want to have rolling forecasts. So this is where, even though it's still an inventory problem, because you changed the data in that way, I went from saying, oh, this PFA would look great, to saying, oh, no, 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 I have to use a rolling deterministic look or deterministic or stochastic look ahead, some sort of direct look ahead. In other words, I have, an, uh, I have a problem that I love. I put in you know, most of my talks where I take an energy storage problem and I worked with a postdoc and we, we, we played mm -hmm. around with the data. We did stationary, we did non-stationary. And I, I came up with four policies from each of the four classes. So I took built policies from each of the four classes and then a fifth policy I built as a hybrid. So I had five policies. We made each of them work best depending on the data. Sorry, what do you mean by hybrid? Uh, a mixture of the two. Okay, so what we did was we did a, a, a deterministic look ahead, mm -hmm. and then we put in tunable parameters. So that the tunable parameters in an optimization model is what I call a CFA, but a classical CFA does not look ahead. So when you take a look ahead and put in mm -hmm. a tunable parameters, you have a hybrid. In chapter 11 of my book, uh, which can be downloaded directly from the web page, I have a whole section on hybrids. There's all kinds of hybrids you can build. And I have a whole section describing, I, I've got a pile of hybrids with two classes of policies, and I think I've got a hybrid with three. I think I even build a hybrid with all four classes all at the same time, all into one policy. Right. So the designing of policies is an art form. And toward the end of chapter 11, I think it's section 11.10, I have a whole discussion about how do you choose which of the four classes of policies. So people in machine learning understand that it's still a human that has to sit down and create the structural model. Do you use a neural network? Do you use a linear model? Are you gonna do tree regression? It's some human doing that. And it's a human reaching out to those three circles. Sequential decision problem, it's a much richer class of functions, but it's still analogous in the sense that with machine learning, a human sort of has to be the one saying, okay, I'm gonna pick this type of neural network or this type of linear model. If I do this linear model, I'll put these features in it. That's a human doing that work. Um, uh, with sequential decisions, you've got a human element of saying, oh, I've got something non-stationary with a look at, I'll do a DLA. Like Google Maps, uh, finding the shortest path you're gonna use a direct look at. There is no other way to do that, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. You can't use any of the four classes on that problem. That, I mean, you could, but it'd just be silly. Mm -hmm. uh, some problems scream which class of policies and others don't. But as you work on a wider and wider range of problems, you kind of get a feel, mm -hmm. you know? So it is the simpler problems. Now, I know, uh, I, I know companies that do inventory planning and it is not stationary. I mean, they've got ships arriving, they've got holidays and seasonal stuff, and yet they're using stationary policies and they have their own adjustments. They're not stupid. Uh, it, it, 
whenever you have a big problem, and I'm going to call reasonably intelligent people working on it, over time, they end up with reasonably good solutions. One of my four classes I call a cost function approximation. Guess what? You won't find that in any book other than mine. I used to like to say that before my book came out, because then I could say it's not in any book, period. <laughs> I have a whole web page just dedicated to explaining cost function approximation. So anybody who thinks I'm just here to sell my book, tinyurl.com forward slash CFA policy is a web page. I got that policy by watching companies actually solve problems. And then I would watch my academic colleagues with very complicated methods. And it took me a long time to re realize, oh my gosh, the companies are right, the academics are wrong. Mm -hmm. And the companies, and what they were missing is they were missing fancy words and fancy math. So the fancy words and math are on that webpage, tinyurl.com forward slash CFA policy. And look for equations two and three. Those are the two key equations. Equation two is the look ahead with the tunable parameter, and equation three is the optimization problem for tuning the parameter. Now, tuning is not easy, but once you have it tuned, solving it is easy. Okay, it's, it's the easiest thing to do, and it has a look ahead. And by the way, you were right, there is no training. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Now, you may use history to train your forecast. Okay, and if you have a non-stationary problem, well, you're gonna to wanna to have multiple years that have previous seasons and whatnot. Okay, now if you've got a COVID type of problem where there's mm -hmm. no history, that gets crazy, but let me put it this way. At the end of the day, you're still using one of the four classes of policies mm -hmm. or a hybrid. So think of that as the toolbox, not telling you what tools to use, but what classes of tools. You know, yes, you need, uh, a hammer and a screwdriver and a drill and a saw. Now, there's many types of each of those, but you got to have all of them if you're going to build a house. Right. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, let me ask you a question. So you, you mentioned you worked in finance. Um, uh, I, I clearly see, let's say, that the application of sequential decision making, for example, both for single funds, uh, but also for funds of funds that want to do capital allocation, dynamic capital allocation based on the performance and uh, so update their policy based on the performance of a, of a, of the system i don't know i have to be careful with words but uh, based on the on the reward of this of the system so uh, and the update of the state of the system um so can you maybe say something now you mentioned covid uh, but you know in finance uh, black swans are a big topic let's say the inability to predict uh, events which are never which never happened in history uh, and the possibility of design systems that are robust uh, against uh, such events. Can you say something about that? So what you're getting at is, so there's two things. In, 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 I had a slide with six steps, beginning with answering the three big questions. Uh, uh, step two was build the model. Step three was building the uncertainty model. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get to building policies until step four. So in chapter 10 of my book, is it's the first book I think that's ever been written on sequential decisions. It has a chapter dedicated to modeling uncertainty. And when I give talks on this, go to section 10.1 and you'll see that I identify 12 different flavors that uncertainty will enter a model. It's, it, it has nothing to do with any application. It's always from the model side. So think of it as a checklist. 
So now the thing is to put up a checklist, and, a, and I often present this as if it's listed on a whiteboard, and then I say, now go to your application. So in my book, I use COVID as an application, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm working on a new book on supply chain management, and I say, okay, and I'm, I'm currently writing this chapter where I had the 12 classes of uncertainty from the spec of models. Then you have to go to your problem and say, what are the types of uncertainties here? Now, some uncertainties you just get from history. Sometimes the ship arrives late, sometimes it doesn't, mm -hmm. sometimes. And then you've got, you call them the black swan events. Now, this is where sometimes you, you can't depend on history. You, you have to sit at the whiteboard and brainstorm and say, this could happen. Now, I've seen people talk as if it's really essential that they think of everything that might happen. So, for example, the ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Mm -hmm. When was the last time that happened? Yet, you don't actually have to say the ship might get stuck in the Suez Canal. You just have to say, wow, uh, I don't know, the ship might get delayed for two months. I don't know, because of pirates. Mm -hmm. Who cares? Once you put in that the ship could have a two-month delay, Okay, and what should be a four-week shipping time could end up being six or eight or ten weeks, and you're like, I don't really know why, but it could happen. Uh, I worked with a, a colleague of mine, a former student who's now at Optimum Dynamics, who did uh, um, operations planning at Kimberly Clark in Brazil, and she says one problem they had is it normally takes three, four, five, seven days to get to a port, but it could be two months because they had a work slowdown because of labor issues. Mm -hmm. You have to sit there and say, I don't actually have to say that there was a work slowdown or there was a Suez Canal or pirates took the ship. I just have to say, but the ship could have been delayed two months. And then you have to say, what would happen if the ship was delayed two months? And I, don't, I won't know the probability. I won't know mm -hmm. the frequency. Mm -hmm. But I, do, I will sit there and say, yeah, but it could happen. Let me, let me talk about grid operators because this is very real. So when uh, PGM, all the grid operators in the United States, energy grids, have, they mean, right? energy grids, when they're planning energy for tomorrow, they have to make sure they have enough energy generators in case the biggest power generator fails. Right. They call it an N minus one condition. Now, how many often do power generators fail? So why don't they have an N minus two condition? I can guarantee you this was resolved at the board of directors level. Somebody way high up said, look, stuff breaks. We've got to prepare for a major outage. Let's prepare for a nuclear power plant going. So they always have to have enough energy generation capacity live on the grid that if their biggest plant fails, they're fine. Mm -hmm. But if two fail, they're not fine. Okay? So somebody had to make that judgment. Mm -hmm. Stress testing and finance. They're starting to talk about stress testing for supply chains. Mm -hmm. What they're going to be doing is creating scenarios. I'm going to call them contingencies in my book, where a human has to sit down and say, this could happen. Now, you have this universe of things that could go wrong, but the way it impacts the model is only a very small number of ways. It could be a cost or a price. It could be a travel time. It could be a capacity. There's not that many things. If you have a background in linear programming, think of your objective function and your constraints and just say, look, it could be supply, it could be demand, it could be a travel time, it could be a price or cost. That's about the whole list. Right. Now, what types of bumps? This is where you have to say, like, did anybody anticipate 
that China would have this massive COVID shutdown spanning three months, and all of a sudden, a whole pile of suppliers had to shut down their supplies. This is the kind of stuff that you have to say, look, I don't know that it's COVID, or maybe it's mm -hmm. uh, uh, an earthquake, or maybe in Taiwan, it's a drought. Taiwan's been struggling with droughts, and it turns out those chip makers mm -hmm. need water. You do have to understand, once you start thinking about uncertainty, you don't have to list every kind. And you don't have to be able to predict an earthquake. You do have to prepare for the possibility it might happen. So Toyota, which invented just-in-time uh, deliveries, was the one who a couple years went out and said, we're really worried about uh, computer chips. And they bought a massive inventory of computer chips and put it in inventory. This is mm -hmm. the inventor of just-in-time. And guess what? There was a real shortage of computer chips, and for about eight or 10 months, Toyota was fine. Mm -hmm. right. uh, before 2008, I think it was around 2004, the chief financial officer of Ford just woke up one night and said, I don't have enough financial reserves. And he went out and got this monster line of credit. Guess what? Ford never went bankrupt during the meltdown. Mm -hmm. It was the one company that didn't, that, that survived because the CFO stood up and said, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just, I just feel like I need more, mm -hmm. more cash reserves. Right. And can we, can we hope, let's say, you, you mentioned the, the interesting uh, example of using uh, an optimal policy based on some parameters that takes into account uncertainty, like the, the quantile on Google Maps, uh, which leads to robust optimal decision making. Um, can we also hope, let's say, to, to include the tuning of our uncertainty in the sequential decision process? Do you have a, uh, experience in Okay. Well, okay, so first of all, let me just, uh, a little bit of vocabulary. You will never hear me use two words in the same sentence. Optimal and policy. Okay. Doesn't exist. There is no optimal policy on any real world problem. You only get optimal policies for toy problems. Uh, not even computer go is an optimal policy. Right. So a robust policy is a good term. Now, when you say tuning the uncertainties, uh, that's really interesting because often, you know, like I said, we're not, we're often not, not using history. Sometimes we're saying this could happen. Mm -hmm. So that's some humans saying this could happen. Mm -hmm. The order could be, the order that arrives in six weeks could arrive in eight weeks. Well, a human made up that number eight. What if he says 10 mm -hmm. or 12 or 14? Now, as you make those, what if it happens bigger, then you have to say, what would I do? Now, you know, what, what companies are doing is just saying, wow, I love that stuff from China, but if I had this big hit, I need a fallback mm -hmm. or I need inventories. And if I need inventories, where do I put the inventory? You know, is it in the port? Is it in my warehouse? So there, there would be, I do believe, a tuning process where you can say, look, I don't really have data for this, but I can play what if games. And then for, as I allow for the fact that this there could be this bigger and bigger delay that I just make up because I'm just uh, brainstorming mm -hmm. here. You have to then turn around and say, what would I do? Now, here's the key thing is you're thinking about uncertainty. Once you get into the mode of thinking about uncertainty. So Wall Street has got this game down. Yes, sometimes they get hit, but they have an entire. First of all, they live and breathe uncertainty every day. Funniest thing is 
So my department at Princeton was operates research and financial engineering, and everybody got uncertainty. Everybody understood uncertainty. You went up to Wall Street, and if you went in to say, Wall Street, your biggest problem is you need better forecasting to get rid of uncertainty, they would laugh at you. Mm -hmm. But you go to business and engineering, and they all think deterministically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the CEO of PSENG, which is the big New Jersey utility, uh, was trained as a nuclear scientist. I mean, this is a smart guy, Ralph Izzo. He's, he's a really bright guy. And somebody who works with him once said he pounded his fist on the table and saying, would somebody please tell me what the price of natural gas will be so I know how to price my uh, gas generators when I buy and sell them. You know, he wanted a deterministic future. You've got to get into the mode of stochastic thinking. So when I go to optimal control, there are pockets of people who do stochastic control but optimal control, as an optimal control friend of mine said, Warren, we're basically deterministic. And every time I would cross the street to electrical and mechanical and civil engineering, you'd realize that they think deterministically. But renewables killed all that because once you get into the world of renewables, you've got to think stochastically. And there's so many of these other problems where uncertainty is so intrinsic. Once you get used to uncertainty, one of the big things in my framework is when I had these four classes of policy, somewhere you have to tune and choose and evaluate. And how do you evaluate? Well, the best way really is to run a very good simulator. And that is the gold standard, okay? And obviously a simulator is just a simulator, but what else do you have? But the fallback is you have to live in the real world. And so PGM does that. They don't have a simulator. They actually see, because all kinds of methods things could happen so they just live with reality but what they do is instead of saying uh, a, a, a supply chain might say we want to uh, have a three percent stock out rate you know we'll satisfy demand 97 percent of the time with uh pg they have to satisfy demand 100.000 percent of the time or maybe 99.999 percent of the time they just cannot tolerate outages and so they're always saying, I might need this much, so I'll put out this much. Mm -hmm. And they make sure the gap is big enough. And they have a bad day where the gap got smaller than they would like. They'll go in and go, okay, no outage. Oh, but that got a little too close, so I'm going to bump it out even more. Mm -hmm. So they need about, at most uh, seasonally, about 120 gigawatts of power. They've got 160. I mean, they've got 160 for a grid that pretty reliably needs about 120. But that's the reserve that they want. Right. So once you get into thinking about uncertainty, and some fields like finance just do this every day, okay? And other areas of engineering and business, they just don't get uncertainty. They don't think stochastically. Mm -hmm. And we've got to get over this. And one of the problems I would claim, so I spent a whole career publishing fancy math papers, dealing with top academics, and one of the problems with uncertainty is the mathematics of uncertainty can get really arcane. And the people who, the professors who get hired to teach that material are always very well-trained mathematically with concepts that, I gotta tell you now, uh, are not even really relevant or necessary when you're gonna do uh, real-world modeling and problem solving. So I have a whole slide that occasionally sent out over LinkedIn with a bunch of words like, Markov, that's my favorite one, Markov. But non-anticipative and sigma algebra and filtrations, these are these fancy terms. And I say, you don't need any of these terms. And I had a couple of people go, Warren, you mean even Markov? And I'm like, yeah. 
if you use the word Markov, it means you don't know what a state variable is. And none of those people know what a state variable is. It's the funniest thing in the world to go find a book. So I have a whole web page, tinyurl.com forward slash on state variables. I have a whole web page that discovers the state of state variables. It's the funniest thing in the world. You do need to understand what a state variable is. You do not need to understand the word Markov. Right. And academics put that uh, upside down. They bury it with all of this really arcane mathematics. And I had to, over my career, I'm trained in some of this stuff, but not all of it. And some of it I had to learn professionally. And then we would write papers and proof theorems and use all the fancy math. And then over time I'd go, you know what? Uh, we don't really need those words. Mm -hmm. You know, we need stuff that's simpler. So chapter 10 of my book, it's not, there's no subtle, deep, uh, sophisticated mathematics for uncertainty. It's, it's very plain English, but in explicit enough terms, you, you can write code. Mm -hmm. And the whole chapter, I'm really having fun writing my new chapter on uncertainty for supply chains. Because it's one thing to write a very generic chapter. Mm -hmm. I'm having a lot more fun writing a chapter on uncertainty in the context of an actual problem class that has a lot of uncertainty. And I'm learning a lot while I'm, I'm, write, I'm currently writing this chapter now. Yeah. And I'm having a lot of fun just thinking through all the ways uncertainty because when you put it in the context of a problem it gets a lot richer the thing is if you switch from here to uh, finance or energy or health uh, the uncertainties get very different it's very unique to each problem mm -hmm. right but i'm going to claim my framework still will give you practical tools that no matter what you come up with it'll still say no these are practical tools by the way, here's one thing. Uh, in a lot of my stochastic work, in my big book, everywhere you'll see expectations. You will see expectations all over the place. In my supply chain book, I started to realize that I'm not going to use expectations very much at all because nobody in supply chain management really cares about expectations. They care about risk. Right. So expectations matter, but risk always matters. I mean, everybody's constantly saying, once there's uncertainty, I want to be on the upper tail and satisfy demand 97% of the time. Right. Let me close with a question, let's say, more personal about your relationship, let's say. I mean, I think you touched uh, implicitly on it, uh, the relation between academia and... Uh, so how you... You're, you're a professor, emeritus professor uh, today, I guess. Um, what's your... How did you, do you live the, these two souls? I'm politics, the professor versus what the real world industry. Yeah. Okay. So Castle Lab uh, was an industry funded lab, a lot of government money, but a lot of industry money. Mm -hmm. And the thing I liked about the industry money was not only that they had a lot of money, but they always wanted me to solve a real problem, but they had data and they had a question. But when I wrote the code, I would then deliver it to the company. And that's when I would realize that I didn't understand the problem very well. And not just that I had to do little fixes to the code, sometimes I had to bring it back and rewrite it from scratch because I'd had this aha, oh my gosh, I just got it wrong. Now, dealing that within uh, academia, academia insists that you publish. Now, there's a lot of journals, they're not all theory journals. There's a lot of good uh, applied computational journals, so there's a lot of outlets. So when you prove the theorem with the student, there's the theory journals, there's a number of engineering journals. Uh, I work in, did a lot of work in transportation. There's a nice journal called Transportation Science. They like math, 
uh, but there's not that many theorems. Uh, they, they're very appreciative of good real world models. My uh, operations research community of informs, they have many, many awards, but the biggest award, the one that gets the most attention, is called the Franz Edelman Award. And the way you win the Franz Edelman, I was a finalist twice, is you've got to go in with a project implemented in industry and you're pretty much being evaluated on the sheer scale of the impact. And they do this like a big, being a finalist is like being having an Oscar nomination. You do this big fancy presentation at this big banquet and they give more attention to that because this very academic society mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that does a lot of really good theory, prestigious theoretical awards, understands that at the end of the day the whole field is grounded in applications and i think it's i think it's just fabulous engineering fields most engineering fields are all grounded in applications mechanical electrical civil it's the more mathematical fields now uh, machine learning uh, is grounded in applications it's called a data set and that's one beautiful thing about that field because there is some pure theory in machine learning but the vast majority of the field is well grounded on a data set. The beautiful thing about machine learning is that you don't have to roll up your sleeves, get on an airplane, fly to a trucking company and talk to people. You could just download a data set and suddenly you're working on a very real problem. So I understand why everybody's running toward it. I do wonder how long it's gonna last because machine learning, it's good, it's important, it's useful. It's not that hard. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's not even a PT. I mean, to, to do uh, professional machine learning requires a master's degree. And to be honest, it's almost like computer programming. I'm not even sure it requires a bachelor's. Hmm. I think a high school student could take a 10-month master's and, 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 and do pretty well as a machine learning people. I remember Elon Musk saying that he didn't care if people had mm -hmm. uh, a college degree as long as they could pound code. There were some of these analytics field that the software is so good mm -hmm. that you don't need a whole lot of training. Sequential decision analytics is not there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm bringing it down where I'm gonna take all the really arcane mathematics and get rid of it because I'm not here to just prove people how much math I know. I, my graduate students did a lot of great math and I, I love them dearly for that. But my book, I said, this is going to be an engineering book. It, it's still, um, you know, I'm going to call it graduate level. I had undergraduates taking the class, but mm -hmm. there's a reason why I wrote my undergraduate book. I still have problems with really good people uh, who just don't get sequential decisions. And so, before they get into any of the technical stuff and the fancy algorithms and whatnot, they have to sort of understand, they have to get sequential decisions. They have to understand what we mean by a decision. Mm -hmm. uh, and reinforcement learning uh, is a problem. It's a massively popular field, but they went down fundamentally the wrong direction as far as modeling. They adopted the modeling style of Markov decision processes, which is the worst possible. And so, the RL people do a lot of computational work, but they generally do it on pretty trivial problems. Right. And uh, so, why do you say that framework is the is the worst possible choice? Oh, let me tell you the four elements of a Markov decision process. You get this in any book, uh, Sutton and Bartow, but you'll get it mm -hmm. in Putterman's Markov. First element, state space. Second element, action space. Third element, one-step transition matrix. Fourth element, the one-period reward. So here's what's missing. 
I don't want to know the state space. I want to know the state variables. And you have to tell me what a state variable is, and none of them do that. Not the RL books, not the Markov decision process books. Number two, action space. Once again, I need to know the decision variables, and I need to know the feasible region, which might have linear constraints. Third thing, I need a transition matrix is never computable, absolutely never. It's the probability of being in a state, taking an action, going to another state. You need what's called the transition function, very popular in optimal control. If I'm in this state and take a particular action and then observe random information, here is the next state. And it's a bunch of equations. If you ever write code, you will write the transition function in your code. And then the objective function. You're supposed to optimize over policies. They never say that because you know why? Well, of course, you're going to have an optimal policy. Hmm. You know how you often use the word optimal policy in your speaking. Please don't ever do that again. There are no optimal policies in the real world. There are policies. There's the best policy in the class. There's robust policies. But there's never optimal policies. And so once you realize you can't solve Bellman, you're in the world of the four classes of policies. And remember, when I listed out all the policies, Bellman was at the bottom. It's the one that you're least likely mm -hmm. going to use. Now, if you compare first edition of Sutton and Bartow, where all they did was approximate value functions, then go to the second edition. If you understand the four classes of policies, you can find all four class examples in the second edition of Sutton and Bartow. They just don't call it four classes of policies. They don't talk about classes. And when you talk about classes, you have to talk about saying what's the best class and what's the best within a class. And for that, you need an objective function that optimizes over policies. The MDP framework never gives you that objective function. Right. And they never talk about risk. Right. So you, uh, I like your, I mean, uh, optimal policy may exist in a tic-tac-toe game. In chess, it may exist, but, but that, that's, you think we should stop even thinking? Okay, I will. Chapter 14 in my book has a whole pile of examples of problems you can solve exactly. Right. I call it exact dynamic programming. Right. And one thing where Bellman is useful is for proving theorems. Okay. You know, uh, there are certain types of policies that are very simple. They don't use Bellman, but the way they came up with the policy was with Bellman, at least as far as proving things. But a lot of times when you go into the real world, let me tell you one of the interesting challenges is once you realize that this is so practical, it starts, you start to appreciate that the real question is simply saying, what is the decision? So with computer go, it's obvious. We, we already know what the decision is, but go around real world life, go about your day-to-day -day life. And as you're walking around and brushing your teeth or doing anything, you'd like to do a better job at whatever you're doing. First question is, what are your metrics? I don't know, podcasts, you'd like to get the most views. So you're interviewing me. Well, maybe I got a lot of views or maybe not. Let me tell you in my LinkedIn post, let me tell you the way for me to get the most views. I have to say something about neural networks. <laughs> if I put the word neural network in there, I get way more views than I do otherwise. So you, you will find that certain types of speakers get more views than other types of speakers. So these are that's a sequential decision problem. You had to decide to reach out to me. Mm -hmm. There are decisions all over the place, but sometimes we just don't recognize when we're making a decision. So even before you get to any of the analytics, get to that first question, metrics, what types of decisions, what types of uncertainties. So it, it's very helpful. It just helps you understand life. Now, some decisions you're not going to want to do analytics for. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just 
thinking about the problem. That sequential decision problem, a lot of people tend to confuse state variable with physical state, like the Go board. Mm -hmm. Let's imagine, let me, let me switch to a different game, tic-tac-toe. Mm -hmm. Actually, let me do a variation. Have you ever played lose tic-tac-toe, where the goal is to lose? Ah, no, I've never played it. Okay. Brand new, all right? So now you're sitting there and you're playing with your, your six-year-old cousin, okay? Okay. So this is a game where, you know, you have the physical state of the board, you've got your three-by-three three board, but you also have the belief about what your opponent's going to do. That's part of your state variable. And one way to win games where you're playing repeated games is to play in a certain way where you get your opponent used to you doing something, and then you do something different and you fool him. Mm -hmm. That's because you're playing a game where the state variable is more than just the physical board. It's also your belief about the opponent. In bandit problems uh, where you're learning, uh, it turns out your state variable isn't the belief. That's the only state variable. And by the way, you can solve that with Bellman's equation. The RL people don't know this. There's a whole field of people uh, who study something called Gittin's indices. And the way the Gittin's index is computed is by solving Bellman's equation for a bandit problem. Chapter seven of my book has this. I think section 7.5 has uh, Gittin's indices. And you set up a bandit problem with Bellman's equation. Now, the only people who actually do that are a bunch of mathematical probabilists because it's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. So what people do is they use what I call a CFA policy, RLP call it upper confidence bounding, or a direct look ahead. So my favorite policy is called the knowledge gradient, which is a one or multi-step look ahead. And those are two classes of policies, both of which are very, very good and practical for certain types of problems. Now, open up Sutton and Bartow, you won't see any mention of knowledge gradient policies because it wasn't invented in computer science. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I have to say that uh, I, I wanted to get my assumptions challenged, let's say, and uh, I, I'll go away with this, uh, this idea of uh, stop saying optimal policy. I mean, yeah, it, it might not even exist. I think, uh, yeah, I think I agree in the sense that uh, I agree in my daily, daily life, the fact that there is not even, it's not even worth thinking about an optimal deterministic policy. If, if you take, uh, uh, if you take um, uh, bandit problems, the computer scientists are very proud of their regret bounds. They don't make, there's two things. Uh, UCB policy that has a nice regret bound, it may have a regret bound. It's not optimal. There's nothing optimal about it. But here's the dirty little secret. It does have a tunable parameter. They all have tunable parameters. The tuning is really important. Tuning has a huge impact and tuning is hard. Now, you go to somebody at Facebook or Google where they use these UCB policies. They actually use these policies uh, to say, what ad should I put up to get the most ad clicks? They, they solve them as bandit problems. I guarantee you the people who actually put that stuff into practice know all about the tuning. But for some reason, they don't cover it in the, the books. So my book does cover it. I, I cover tuning in depth. Um, chapter seven, uh, I will cover UCB policies. The way you do the tuning <laughs> might be with a UCB policy. Tuning is a sequential decision problem. So you have to solve a sequential decision problem to solve your sequential decision problem. Right. Anyway, so I've got a lot of stuff. I, I took early retirement just because I realized <laughs> I got to get this book <laughs> to work <finished>. more. <laughs> 
and I and I want to get it to an audience that's way bigger than Princeton University. Right. Well, you got me. Uh, I can't wait. It's coming next week. Uh, I I see the value of it. Uh, uh, as I said, in finance, the dynamic allocation is something, and this applies to my daily work. By the way, I don't know if you downloaded the undergrad book. No, I didn't. I was not aware of that. I'll... As a free download, tiny. So, by the way, what I'm about to tell you is not on a website anywhere. It's tinyurl.com forward slash pal sdam book. Tinyurl.com forward slash Powell, S-D-A-M, book. S-D-A-M, book. Book. And it's a teach, it'll, the PDF should download. Ah, yeah. And uh, it's a teach by example style. If you look at the table of contents, other than chapters one and seven, which are more overview, every chapter has the same outline. So it makes it very skimmable. Mm. Nice. And I would encourage you to read chapter one. Then skim chapters two, three, four, five, and six, and then read chapter seven. Because chapter seven will say, okay, we had these ideas from chapter one. We now have examples in two through six, and you don't have to read, you, you, have, you, you just need to skim those chapters. And then chapter seven will go back over the first six chapters and pull things out and compare them and contrast them like a state variable. You'll see different examples of state variables and you'll see illustrations of all four classes of policies. So that book is the most effective of getting you how to think about these problems. The big book is really for somebody who's actually gonna write code. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, yeah, I'm just sharing, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i just uh, looking at it, people can see. But in the big book, when it arrives, take a peek at section 2.1. This is where I cover all 15 fields in their home notation. So it's like one section, you can get this skim of all these different fields in the notation of the field. There's 14 subsections, section 2.1 is divided into two sub-subsections because it's stochastic search and I have derivative base and derivative free mm -hmm. stochastic search. But, uh, you know, I'll show you, here's what reinforcement learning looks like, you know, in its canonical form. Here's ADP, here's optimal control, uh, here's a decision tree. Mm -hmm. Right, great. I'll start from there. Uh, I hope I can reach out, let's say, during after reading it for some questions, if you don't hey, mind. Listen, I, I am here to help people get thinking about this problem and to get the word out. So great. then I'll ask uh, questions on a LinkedIn post uh, <laughs> with the hashtag machine learning or neural network. What did you say? So people see it. <laughs> I I just couldn't believe I, I put out a, a post where I said, wow, neural networks can work really, really badly if you have two features of your problem. If you have structure, like the higher the price, the lower the demand, you have mm -hmm. a monotone structure, and you have noise. Structure and noise is two things that neural networks don't like to hear because they want to fit the noise. Mm -hmm. Most of the big real-world applications to neural networks are on deterministic problems. You know, pattern recognition is a deterministic problem, very high-dimensional, which means no structure in the form of continuity, you know, like the way it would in engineering or, 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 or business, where you have like monotonicity or con concavity or something like that. And so I have a couple of uh, pictures from my standard uh, uh, stump speech that pokes fun at neural networks. Thank God, I must have gotten about 150,000 views, which is for me is a lot. And for, probably of people that are big fan of and don't agree. I don't know. Uh, 
See, the thing is, a lot of people with their favorite tool, they also have their favorite problem, okay? Uh -huh. So I've got this one book on reinforcement learning. What it is, is he took Sutton and Bartow and then wrote it all up in Python code and then wrote a book around illustrating everything in Python code, and that's fine. But opening the book, he says, oh my God, reinforcement learning is used all over the place. And, and he just said things that were just not true. You go to the RL community and it's full of people, they have their little pet problems in video games. Oh my gosh, Marty Putterman, who wrote what is the high water mark of Markov decision processes. I mean, this is the Bible of Markov decision processes. Went to a conference, which is very popular with the RL and machine learning crowd. And he sent me this email says, Warren, I'm here in a room with 5,000 people playing video games. So Marty and I come from operations research. We like to work on real problems. You know, we like to work on an energy or train, whatever. But these people are endlessly doing video games and they don't seem to understand that video games are not hard. They're not hard to model. You know, there's all these toy problems and then they get all this attention. Mm -hmm. I got interviewed by a BBC uh, uh, writer who was told to write 1500 words on how reinforcement learning is going to solve the problems of humanity okay mm -hmm. and somehow she got hold of my name and i kept trying to tell her it says you know look these, these problems are hard and uh you know but she got this editor's like oh my god rl can solve everything you know i'm like no they can solve computer go mm -hmm. there are some pocket problems it is very good at but if you look at sutton and bartow there's not one algorithm there's a whole family of algorithms. the second edition second edition the first edition is a hammer looking for a nail mm -hmm. if you look at my adp book i'm a hammer looking for a nail i mean we're all oh my god approximate value vendors to come i mean we, we're all falling into this and then all the communities and it's not just it's not just reinforcement learning it's not just me all the different communities doing sequential decisions everybody's following a common path into the four classes of policies i've been able to document it and guess who got there first the optimal control people so they don't get all the attention, but they were there first. They were doing approximate dynamic programming in the early 1970s. They were doing look-aheads. Uh, I think back model predictive control back in the 60s. They were doing linear decision rules in the 50s. I mean, they were doing all these different classes of policies. The only one I haven't really been able to find clearly is what I call the cost function approximation, where you do a deterministic approximation with two and more parameters. And it's just, it's very hard to search on. I mean, there's an ocean of papers out there. So um, it's very hard to search and find. I mean, the idea of doing a deterministic model with tunable parameters is utterly obvious, but doing it in a formal way is mm -hmm. industry people don't know how to do it. It's on the CFA policy website, tinyurl.com CFA policy. Search on the number two with parentheses and search on the number three, there's two equations those are the two key equations. One says, here's a deterministic model with tunable parameters, and then here's where we tune the parameters. And the tuning the parameters is a stochastic optimization problem, and I claim that that's a perfectly valid way of doing stochastic optimization. And right now, I'm the only one out there doing this. But I'm trying to get the word out. <laughs> okay, I'll have to take a look and... Uh... Hope, hope this helps, let's say, in some minor ways. As I said, I mean, uh, I'll for sure uh, come back with, uh, with a set of questions, I'm sure, about the book, because I already saw, yeah, you mentioned the, the gradient-based and the yeah. gradient-free distinction. I, I have a lot of uh, uh, pictures 
I, I asked people to ship me pictures of my book on their bookshelf. Right. You know, if, if you can put it, the beautiful thing about the book at 1100 pages, it kind of stands out. Yes, it's definitely. You can, the, you can put the book on your bookshelf and just shoot me a, a picture of that. I'll add it to my collection. Right. And periodically, I rejigger my whole bookshelves so everybody gets a little bit smaller and I can put in some more pictures. Okay. And I'll be happy to be part of it. Great. Okay, well, thank you very Enjoy. much for your time. <laughs> it was nice meeting you. Thank Have you. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.